Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I'm Dan Nathan. I am joined by a very good friend and a fabulous overall person. Her name is Katie Stanton. You guys remember her. Welcome back to OK Computer. She is the founder and general partner at Moxie Ventures in Boulder, Colorado. Thank you so much for having me. Good to see you. The first time we pod, I think, did we pod? It was in Boulder. Didn't we do that? It was like, I want to say a year ago, summer or something like that. I don't know. It was face to face. It was really fun. We had this good vibe going here. We're like, Katie, you got to pod more with us on OK Computer. And you did for a while. And then what happened? Then you gave me COVID. And I was too oh, scared to come COVID? back. No, right. No, I didn't do that, did I? <laughs> All right. We actually, I'm really excited to catch up with you and hear what you've been up to with Alex, your partner at Moxie out there in Boulder. And we have a really awesome episode because we have two founders. These are two companies, portfolio companies of Moxie. We have Scott Stevenson, the co-founder and CEO of Spellbook. And we have Elliot Green, the CEO, co-founder of Dandelion Health AI. And interestingly, the timing couldn't be better for these two discussions because, again, these are two companies, these are two founders that have been using machine learning and to solve big problems for a while. It just seems like there's a moment right now for, as far as the media, the tech community, the investment community are concerned. And I'm just curious, like for you, remind our listener a little bit about what your mission was when you started Moxie and then how do companies like this with what they're trying to do fit within that mission? This is a really exciting and I think very important time. So I started investing over 10 years ago and then four years ago I started Moxie. And the whole idea of Moxie was to invest in early stage companies that build software solutions to hard problems that help a lot of people. Sounds very basic. And so everything we were investing in was in software and that, and we're generalists. So we invest across lots of things, healthcare, climate, enterprise, some fintech, some consumer, some marketplace, everything. And over the past six months or so, we have seen this gigantic leap in enthusiasm for AI. And these markets always have big hype cycles. We saw it with crypto and Web3 and blockchain. And those were things that were interesting, but at least I never really got it. <laughs> so we didn't invest in any of these things. But the AI movement is real and it's considerable. It feels like that iPhone moment, almost that Netscape moment, these big moments that are radically going to change the way we think and the way we build. And so for us over the past six months, we've been trying to get really smart in this category. We're fortunate that my partner, Alex Redder, is a software engineer by training for fun. He nerds out and reads papers on AI. So that's awesome. And then a few months ago, we knew that we wanted to hire at Moxie. We put out this job description for a new associate. We had over 600 people who applied, which was insane. We we're very lucky. And one of those candidates was a guy named Pratik Joshi, who is a machine learning AI specialist, engineer, founder. He's written 13 books on machine learning. And he applied to us. We're like, we got to hire this guy. And we did. And he's been amazing. And so I think a lot of VCs like us are just very interested in the promise and trying to 
identify the signal from the noise, finding those great founders who can really do something different and have a unique insight to solving some of these problems. So you'll see meet with two of those founders today. These are companies that were born well before the hype of the last six months. And I find that actually the most interesting part of these sorts of discussions. And I'm just curious, like for you though, you just mentioned crypto, Web3, I'd throw in metaverse. These were all like, like really hype bubbles in the last few years or so. And for me, like I'm not in the VC business. I know a lot of VCs. I speak to a lot of them every week. And it's interesting. Quietly, a lot of VCs will tell you during all of those in the background of all those situations, there's a bunch of bullshit here. You know what I mean? Okay. It seems a little different this time, at least as way VCs are putting capital to work at the valuations in which they're doing it relative. They know it's hype. And again, you've lived through these cycles. You started in tech in the late nineties. You worked at Yahoo, right? And so like even people working at Yahoo in 1999 or 2000 or wherever you were, you knew things were insane. It couldn't continue to go that way. So I'm curious, do you think it's a little different? You just use the term also an iPhone moment. A lot of people were poo-pooing the iPhone when it came out because it didn't do a whole heck of a lot. It was a $700 cell phone when people were used to spending $200 on a razor. Help me decipher a little bit. Again, you as a generalist, Alex with a technical background, you hired somebody who's been in this space for a long time. It seems like you are like setting the stage to take advantage of whatever happens. If the hype dies down, we know that there's going to be a very long runway for this technology to disrupt lots of existing technologies. So I'm just curious, like, where you're coming out on this. So for us, we tried to first, we're very founder-driven. So who are these founders? What makes them so special? What are their unique talents? It's one thing to be a technical founder, but do you know how to build? And so we spent a lot of time thinking about those founders And then we try to think through what is the problem that they're solving and is there a high and clear ROI? So again, the two founders that you meet with today, some of the clearest examples in AI and clearest use cases are in the advancement of healthcare and also in in places that are low tech and very expensive, like law firms and legal work. Um, So we tend to look at the founders, we look at the problem they're solving, we look at the market, we look at, are they close to the buyers? Is there money? Is someone going to pay for these things? It's one thing to create some new AI application for your avatar, will people really pay money for those things? And we've been spending a lot of time just getting to know those those founders who have been attacking these problems for a long time. Again, they have unique insight to it and they have the ability to move fast. I think what's so mesmerizing about this space is how quickly OpenAI has been able to iterate on top of their existing models. We haven't even seen really like the capability of BARD. And I think it's crazy to discount Google. I think Google has been sitting on top of these things for so long and they have so many brilliant engineers there. So I think it's just a really exciting moment and we just have to be paying close attention. Was that a public markets thing? I know that you keep like kind of one eye on public markets a little bit. You've worked at publicly traded tech companies. And I know that people, when you're working at Twitter, you're working at Google or whatever, you're always looking at the stock price and what people are saying about it. But it seemed like the market cap movement, this is going back to January right after ChatGPT, four came out, it seemed like that there were hundreds of billions of dollars in movements where, remember, Alphabet was selling off and Microsoft was rallying. And then we saw a reversal of that. Then we saw them both rally. And then we saw the chip makers rally. NVIDIA, a trillion dollars. It's 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 insane. So I'm just curious, like, how is that affecting, you think, some folks in VC? We know that there's lots of big money chasing. And the strategic, Google, their investment arms, a lot of these guys are committing hundreds of millions of dollars at billion dollar valuations way pre-revenue, right? Like for some of these things, 
How is that hype affecting what's going on with VCs like you who actually have a fiduciary responsibility to invest at reasonable valuations on things that you think have a high probability of working out? I don't know if it affects VCs, at least for folks like us at Moxie, because we're early stage. We invest at seed. So the big guys are just so far away from us, right? And trillion dollar valuations, they're just so big. I do worry that we have institutionalized the big tech firms. The big ones are just getting bigger. Is there going to be room for another billion dollar company in the next 10 years? I hope so. And I hope I'm investing in them. (laughs) But I think that's just one thing I do think about separately. We think about when we invest in these companies, are they going to compete? Are they going to acquire this company? We have a lot of companies that are trying to build really interesting applications, but they're going to have to sell it in the app store. They're going to have to sell it, develop it on Android. Will Google and Apple play nicely with some of these companies? I don't know. Will they steal their IP? Maybe. And so there's just a lot of what ifs, but we try to at least at Seed be really focused on can this founder, these founders go from zero to one? Can they do it quickly? How do they do it so fast that they don't run out of money? Because the capital markets are, or at least at Seed and A, are a bit tight. There was a recent stat that I saw something like the total VC capital raised by startups went down 80% from Q1 to Q2 of this year. And I would argue, I don't have the exact statistics, but I would argue that the 20% who did get funding were all in AI. Facebook, when they bought Instagram for a billion dollars, it was either on the eve of their IPO, but that was like 11 years ago. Think about that. So Instagram is the value of Facebook right now. And we know that there's like the way the regulatory landscape looks like right now, it's just not going to be likely to make those sorts of acquisitions. That being said, at a very early stage, you can aqua hire teams, right? And that sort of thing. Does that make your job as an early stage seed investor harder? Because for instance, if you invest in a company at seed because you like the founders, you like their mission, you think it's like a reasonable shot of success, but then when they normally be doing an A or B, they just get gobbled up before that. An acquisition at that size won't be in the purview of regulators. Is that like a problem for VC or early stage VC? I think so. Worst case scenario is that the company runs out of money and it dies. And maybe the second worst case scenario is that they get acquired. Yeah. And usually if it's an aqua hire, only the founder is going to get any capital out of it. And maybe it's a million dollars per engineer. It's never a great outcome from an investor point of view, unless it's an Instagram and you were that early. So we try not to optimize for that. We optimize for a company that's just going to make it. They're going to become the most important company on the planet. So you started angel investing 10 years ago. I think you were still at Twitter at the time. And I was at Google. My first investment was in a company called Shape Security. And it was somewhat accidental because the founder, Summit Agarwal, was someone super smart to work with at Google. He had such enormous hustle. I didn't even know what the difference was at Seed or A. I was just betting on him and he had a great outcome. So I was lucky there. Oh, that's pretty cool. So but you've seen some cycles now, even in 10 years. And despite, let's say, quarter over quarter VC funding down 80% or something like that, like it's going to be back up above the prior 2021 highs or something like that in the not so distant future. How is this like down period, this down turn, like how does it relate to some of the other cycles that you think you've seen so far? Because we, I don't, I haven't talked to too many VCs where like things are rip roaring and they feel too optimistic. A lot have a lot of capital deploy and they don't see a lot of great opportunities outside of AI startups right now. This is a very uneven market. So you see the really fancy engineers, founders, they're on their second or third company. They've had good exits before. All the VCs are tracking them. All the VCs are sending them term sheets at very high valuations. 
including us. We had a company we met two weeks ago, incredible founder. We knew we were competing with all the biggest firms, something like eight term sheets within a couple of days. And the price was higher than I would have liked, but I want to be in this deal. And we're going to get in this deal and we're very excited by it. At the same time, we see a lot of other founders who aren't in this particular space who are struggling to raise. We see a lot of companies who are stuck trying to raise seed extensions, which are always very difficult. So we're seeing a lot of bridge rounds that are going around. We have seen a lot of companies who have great, great traction, great metrics that a year ago would have gotten them awesome term sheets. They have between one and 2 million ARR, which was the typical expected going from seed to A. You have product market fit, now you need to scale, blah, blah, blah. And they're not getting anywhere. So the market is really stingy about a lot of these companies. It just has to be in that top 1% to be able to break out and get capital. So I don't know how long this lasts. I hope that the freeze will thaw later on this year because there are a lot of good companies out there. But on the flip side of it, it makes it easier to see the winner. It's not as noisy as it was a couple of years ago where everyone wanted to be a founder. Everyone was getting capital. Everyone was a VC. Things have settled a little bit. And the nice thing that is happening now too is that we have time. We have time to do our research, time to do our due diligence, time to get to know the founders and for the founders to get to know us. So it's funny, due diligence, and it was a theme I think we talked a lot about in the start of 2022. And I know Rick Heitzman, who's been on the pod a lot with me at the time, he's a very established VC here in New York, and he was calling it out. Where's the due diligence? The capital was just flying around with the goofiest Web3 sort of things or whatever. And again, I think part of what you guys as venture investors, you have to be optimistic. You have to bet on some of the crazy ideas and some of the founders you like who, who leave amazing jobs at huge companies and to do things that are pushing the envelope. But by, by the same token, it's just there didn't seem to be a whole heck of a lot of due diligence. And the 2022 period that's seeping into 2023, even as the public markets have seemed to recover, the Nasdaq's up 33% of the year, okay? It still seems like the private tech market is not bottomed, right? And we're probably a couple quarters away from that. We're going to see, remember when we started out this year, Tom Levero over at IVP, remember that Twitter thread when people were still on Twitter? It was like this mass extinction <laughs> event coming for startups, for tech startups and stuff like that. It seems like we haven't had the bottoming out yet. Is that fair to say? I think so. I think a lot of VCs are perversely incented not to mark down their investments. And We've actually been a little bit more on the conservative side because we have a couple of companies in our portfolio that may have been marked up to over a billion dollars by other firms. And that's really nice on paper, but we know it's not grounded in reality. And let's just be practical about this. Let's be practical. Let's be honest stewards of the capital that we've raised and just stay focused on building great companies and, and really thinking as long-term investors. So there has been a lot of hyperbole out there that remains in the market. I do think that we still have more room to mark things down, but this is still, as everyone says, a great time to build. And there's still great founders out there. There are still so many important problems in the world that we have to solve. And it's been really refreshing to see those founders that are so deeply committed to some of these problems, just roll up their sleeves, take the risk, absorb the work and just dig in and grow. All right. So you just mentioned important problems. And again, part of the ethos, I think, at Moxie and you and I have talked a lot about this over the last couple of years ago, is attacking these important problems. And I know your focus has been on health tech and climate tech. So has all this discussion in the last six months and all this money chasing AI, has it crowded out some of these important endeavors? Or is there still a lot of great work being done? Are there still 
reasonable valuations being paid in some of those areas, enough attention to from the right minds, the right investors. It's been really exciting to see, particularly in climate tech, something like $60 billion was poured into the climate tech industry from venture capital. And that I think is a record. I don't know the exact stats from last year, but but we are seeing in an improved and increased appetite for these things. And climate tech is pretty vast, though, too. It's not just software. It's very, it can be very capital intensive. There are all kinds of different sub-verticals from food tech to, to fusion to green cement and hydrogen. So all kinds of interesting things that are going into climate tech. And I think we're seeing a lot in healthcare as well. People realize that it's the largest part of our economy there are so many broken pieces of it from diagnosis to your healthcare spending and all these different things. So I think that there's an enormous amount of upside in a couple of these important categories. All right. So have you seen, you just mentioned a deal that you're going to participate on that was very hot and there was eight term sheets. Are you seeing a lot of companies over the life cycle, let's just say, where maybe they weren't getting a few looks on this bridge or something like that? Have they pivoted a little bit? Have they added how they're going to be using these large language models to optimize for this or that. And they're going to, are you seeing that a little bit? And are you calling bullshit on some of it? Because I'm just curious, some of it's very real. All of this technology ultimately will be embedded in almost everything that we do on our laptops or our our cell phones or our AR headsets or something. Eventually, not now. It's not, there's not going to be too many great commercial applications for it in the next year or so, in my opinion. Exactly. I remember, this will age me, but going back when I first worked at Google, we had a mobile team. And that team would work on how to make sure that Google was available on mobile. Everything is mobile. Going to Twitter, we had an international team and we had to think about how do we expand Twitter internationally? Everything is international. I think we're at that moment now with AI. Everything is AI. And so we do see a lot of startups rebranding. All of a sudden they're blah, 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 dot AI, or they are AI for blah, blah, blah. So there's a remarketing going on, which is fine, but you have to be actually doing it too, to make it matter and to get funding and to actually grow. Yeah. Well, so let's go to the less important things. You just mentioned Alphabet, Twitter, Yahoo. These were all consumer facing internet companies and they were all just huge. They were huge pioneers in their own spaces at their time. Do you remember it just seemed like every new hot social app or video app or these were like the rage a few years ago. Now it just doesn't seem like there's anything interesting bubbling up. And then to your point before, it's like these platforms are so big right now. To a point, the fact that Alphabet doesn't feel like they need to have a social platform. They, they got rid of Google Plus 10 years ago. Now, granted, YouTube is massively a social platform, right? All the comments and, and the videos and the user-generated stuff and everything like that. But it's not social the way we think about engaging with one another or having the ability to have a conversation in a way like you might on a WhatsApp or some of these other things. So Talk to me about that landscape right now. Is there anything interesting going on in in the, because even like you and I talked a bit about Twitter spaces, when Twitter launched that, it seems so promising, right? But then when's the last time you were on a Twitter space? When's the last time you heard of anybody other than Ron DeSantis doing something horrible on Twitter? (laughs) No, but I mean that, it's just not happening anymore. So I'm just curious, thoughts on that, because you know a lot of really creative people. Are people thinking about some of these social applications or they just moved on from that? Yeah, you're right. As you think about the trillion dollar companies out there, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, NVIDIA, none of them really have a social platform. They don't need it. They have enough businesses going on. And I've seen so many new attempts at Twitter, the new Twitter, and I'm obviously biased and I really wanted to see one of them take over. But Twitter just 
it's going to keep on ticking. And so instead of seeing like a new Twitter, we're seeing like 100 new Twitters. How do you, as an investor, how do you bet on that? For me, we don't, it's just too hard to pick a winner in that Post, space. blue sky, all those Yeah, things. who cares at this point? I can't even get myself to join any of these things. I'll join for like a hot second and then flame out real fast. And so I think it's really hard to build these consumer social platforms. And we, we've seen that they're not really doing so much good for us right now. We have an addiction disorder. Our kids are struggling. Our daughters are worried about their body image and it's bad. So what is the antidote to that? I don't know. I hope there are founders out there trying to build something like that. We have a, an epidemic of loneliness. What can we do? Like these social platforms don't make us less lonely. They make us more lonely because we feel like we're missing out on things. I don't know if we need that stuff right now. It's interesting because Jack Dorsey seems to regret a whole heck of a lot of the thing that he built. And he, he, got, he got very turned around last year when Elon was the savior and then he wasn't the savior. And look at what he's turned into it. I, there was a headline today that that ad revenue at Twitter is down 60% year over year. When you think about his whole thing was like, okay, we're going to get we're going to do subscriptions. That's how we're going to monetize this platform because all the advertisers are left. And then he just announced a CEO who literally ran ads at one of the biggest media companies in the world. And I don't think given the tack that this company has taken, you're going to get the advertisers back. Turn on Fox News, see what's being advertised. It's, it's gold and it's survivalist yeah. bullshit yeah. and everything like that. So that's not going to be a thing. And people have already proven that they're not going to pay for subscriptions. And then you see platforms within this broader platform like Spaces not growing and not like living up to the promise. And it, it's just it, it is interesting to me when you think about how few social companies have been able to gain hundreds of millions of active users. You know what I mean? Twitter was one of them, but it's failing. Snap is not doing particularly great. TikTok is doing well, but then we have this thing between us and China. And Instagram has just been taken over by Reels. You know what I mean? So you used to go on Instagram and you'd see your friends' pictures of their kids at this and that. Now it's just a bunch of user-generated stuff that looks like TikTok. I know. I go on Reels and my kids will make fun of me, but that was on TikTok two weeks ago, Mom. Oh, really? It's <laughs> just like yeah. dated Reels yeah. or dated TikToks. Yeah. But you're right. First of all, no responsible advertiser should be advertising on Twitter. Full stop. The It is chaos. I can't even go onto this product. And I loved Twitter. I dedicated a big chunk of my life on Twitter. It makes me very sad. But there is very there are very few people working on trust and safety. So if you're an advertiser, you should expect... They just left. They just left. And, and left. for good reason. Like opportunity cost of their time. They are great people, great talent. They should be building something better somewhere else where someone really cares who owns the company. And so if you're an advertiser, you are on Twitter, you are at risk of having your brand next to some kind of psychotic, neo-Nazi, terrible thing. So anyway, if you're an advertiser, you should actually sponsor OK Computer, I think, objectively. That. Is that we okay? We have two oh, great sponsors. I wasn't sure if I was getting in we, trouble no, for that. No, we have Current and Row. We have a brand new sponsor. Where you're <laughs> going to start hearing Roe. our great, you're gonna start hearing our great Row ads. And you know what? I'm customers. <laughs> Of both of these fine companies, so we appreciate their great support. No, but, but it's, you know. <laughs> that the, was organic, though. Yeah, I know, that you didn't, really organic. did not ask me so to say like, that, that, so yeah, that came well, naturally. I, I appreciate it. But one thing is interesting to me because tech people, media people, sports people, politicians used to spend a lot of time on Twitter. It was, Elon uses that term, town square, and I almost want to say to him, you keep using that term, but I don't think you know what it means anymore because Twitter's not the town square. I got kicked off of Twitter in April and I haven't been. A, it's Times Square. And I don't, but yeah, exactly. It's and not I, Times Square. Yeah, I have been to Times Square recently. It's not particularly great. So it's interesting that we've seen that die before our eyes. I have two teenage girls. I'm, and I know you have teenagers and a little older too. 
but you're constantly asking them, what are you using? Like, how are you communicating people? How are you sharing things? That sort of thing. And, you know, anecdotally, it seems they're still using Snap and they still consume the videos on TikTok. But outside of that, they're not using a whole heck of a lot. So there is just white space if someone can come up with the next thing, but it can't look like the last thing. That's right. Yeah. What is that unique insight? And getting network effects, that's hard. It's really hard to get new people onto a platform and finding that friend or finding that influencer, finding that content. So that's why it's just very difficult from an investing lens to be able to pick that winner. All right, Katie Stanton, you and I got caught up here. Stick around for our conversation with Elliot Green, the CEO and co-founder of Dandelion Health AI. And Scott Stevenson, he's the co-founder and CEO of Spellbook. All right, Katie and I are back. We are here with Elliot Green. He is the co-founder and CEO of Dandelion Health AI. Now, Elliot, I just learned this is your first podcast ever. We're breaking the cherry here a little bit. Is that we what you're are, saying? We are. As I said, be gentle. That's good thing it's a British accent. <laughs> that's something, that's something, Katie. Yeah, you already sound smarter than us, yeah. so we got yeah, that covered accent, here a little good. bit. But the theme of this pod, if you're listening right now, you know that we're talking about how different uses of AI, this thing that everyone just seems to be really focused on over the last six months or so is being infused into all different type of business processes focused on all different verticals. And probably, I think Katie used this expression before, we're having this iPhone moment and we can all think about that period that that kind of in and around that iPhone, the confluence of mobile and social. And it feels like people think this is bigger. Elliot, talk to us a little bit about Dandelion Health and why you think this is such a big moment for you, your company, your peers, and what you guys are doing a little bit. So Dandelion Health is a healthcare data platform, which has multimodal patient data focused very much on clinical AI and precision analytics. And so lots of buzzwords there. <laughs> we are less in the kind of generative crazy AI space. And what we're, we're really focused on is how do we use AI to improve clinical decision-making how do we use it to improve the way that people analyze healthcare data at a really high fidelity level? And right? when you say people, you mean doctors? Uh, I mean, in this one, either AI developers or data scientists. Okay. So that's who we're really focused on. We're hoping that the end products that all of these people build end up in front of patients and doctors and anyone else that where high fidelity data will just cause great outcomes that we're currently not seeing. And so talk to me a little bit about some of your co-founders. Like, how did you arrive at this vertical and this problem to solve? Yeah, so I've got three co-founders. One's a health system executive. The other two are academics in healthcare AI, that intersection. I guess it will stem from myself and Niam, who's a health system exec. We became friends when I was at Oscar Health and he was at Mount Sinai. And that friendship continued. And then beginning of 2020, late 2019, we were both getting contacted for different reasons by AI companies, but both of them about data. He was at Mount Sinai and people wanted to get data. I was being approached by companies who wanted to build teams looking for data. And we were like, this is interesting. What's going on? And then Sendor and Ziad came into the mix. Those are the academic co-founders. And the four of us started thinking, why is everyone looking for this? What is going on? And Sendor and Ziad themselves have been struggling to find data to run really cool experiments. Hey, what would happen if you went in with chest pain to an ED? How do people triage you? Like they look at an ECG, but do they really understand or are they just making a guess? Could be indigestion, might be a heart attack. We don't know. Wouldn't it be great to get longitudinal data so we could see what happens to the person with this waveform in six months time? And so realizing that this wasn't happening, we we're like, how should we do this? And then we thought the data only lives in one place and that's health systems. And so that's how Dandelion began. 
the idea of why don't we approach all of these health systems and see whether or not so they'd be helpful. This is some sci-fi stuff. When we think about some of the movies that we've all been watching for years and you have these robots that scan a box, this is really what you're talking about. It has to have a large pool of data that's synthesized to these sorts of outcomes and when it's scanning something really quickly. And it seems like healthcare has been one of the spaces that has been on the forefront of kind of focused on how to use this with the appropriate healthcare providers. Is the healthcare infrastructure, we know it, and I know, Katie, you know the space really well. It seems like there's lots of issues there. Can tech solve these sorts of problems, you know what I mean? Or or is it going to be faced with like lots of hurdles every step of the way? Tech can't solve everything on its own. (laughs) That's the first thing we should always say about healthcare. And so doctors are 100% needed. It's more, we've got so much data now that we've gone past the point where humans are able to decipher it. And so why don't we use the help and the aid that a machine and all of these incredible computing processes can enable? And so, yeah, I guess it's a little sci-fi in the sense of, we were discussing before this started, like healthcare and health regimens and how do you do it? Like, I would love to go and be able to get a full body MRI scan. There was a company that just got approved for that actually yesterday. Why? Because that's the best health checkup you could possibly get. But instead of one human trying to look at it and understand what's going on, what I'd love to know is, can I get all of the data serves, a thousand algorithms running in the background to find out, like, is there a mass there that I should know about? Is this happening? That's not sci-fi. It's actually pretty simple. The problem is we've never had the data to be able to do it. And so Dandelion is now getting access to that data to be able to do it. And with our health system partners, they're being on the forefront too. So we're hoping that we can combine everything back into the ecosystem to really make it real rather than necessarily doing it from the outside. Katie, what was, you met Elliot, you met the team here, heard about the problem. What attracted Moxie to Dandelion? So we had been investing in a number of companies that were AI for blah, blah, blah. So we have one company that's AI for dermatology. They're doing really well. It's called MD Algorithms. We had personally invested in a company called Breed Health, which is AI for radiology. But Getting that bet correct is very hard. And I remember there was a week where we had met three companies that were AI for cardiology. All three of these companies were outstanding. How are we possibly going to pick which one is going to be the winner? And I remember having this conversation with a friend of ours named John Kolstadt, who is a health economist at Berkeley. And we asked, who is doing something that's going to be a platform play that can help enable and accelerate a lot of the advancement that we need in healthcare and let us be able to support many winners in this industry. And he said, oh, you should talk to a friend of mine. And I think he had just been advising Dandelion Health and said, talk to Elliot. He's really incredible. And we were just struck by the integrity of the team, their backgrounds, very unique. You from Oscar and the team from a health system and from universities and Just all that combination combined, it was the right team building the right product at the right time. And we just fell in love very quickly. And what's really funny, this is the first time that we're meeting here on the pod because we've only known each other remotely. So it's really great to to really meet and get to know the team. But what they're building, we think is really phenomenal. So, Elliot, how do you think about, like, for instance, you said you, you have to partner with certain organizations to get the data, right? And then you have to build the systems that are going to be able to work within the healthcare apparatus. How are the hospital systems, health insurance systems, how are they thinking about this? Do they see it as disruptive to them? We're going to get to the doctors because the doctors are going to be a whole other thing. So talk to me a little bit about the landscape here and how you guys play within it. Credit to the health systems when we started the conversation, because this was three years ago now, which kind of feels crazy in and of itself. 
And what we really needed was strong regional health systems because you need to be able to track people all the way through. And so we chose a few. One of them is Sharp in San Diego. Another one is Sanford in the Dakotas. And one of them is Texas Health Resources in Dallas. And you talk about why you picked those three and not Mount Sinai, which would have been obvious. So actually, this isn't happening already a little bit. People have gotten data out of places like Mount Sinai and Cleveland Clinic and University of California, San Francisco. And those are all great places, but it's not representative of the care that's being delivered in the U.S. Like those are academic medical centers. They get very different care, much higher acuity. And so what we really wanted to do was create a platform where instead of having to build an algorithm using data from A, and then you have to go back and rebuild it from B and rebuild it again from C, we're like, why don't we create a platform where you just build it once? And Pareto rule-esque, we'll have enough people and enough data that you can scale your product across the country. So we'll eventually have somewhere in the region of 15 to 20 million patient records. And so the health systems, when we first approached them, what they really thought about was, this is coming. And what you always need in one of these large organizations is people who just get it. And so at Sharp, it was a guy called Mike Regan. And he's like, I know this is coming. And this is either going to work out one of two ways. We'll either ignore this and eventually Google and Microsoft and somebody else will get all of this data and they'll develop all of these products around us. Or we can jump on the bandwagon now and we'll have a front row seat for kind of what's going to be happening in the future. And that was the key for us. And so you just need one. And you hope it's like a pretty senior person and they can convince the rest. And then slowly but surely momentum builds. And now we're at the amazing situation where we have three health systems already and about 10 million patients and we're off to the races. So who did you need to adopt first? Obviously, the healthcare systems, they need to sign on. Is there, is there like any consumer pushback or do, do patients recognize that this is going to be a very beneficial thing for them in an apparatus that doesn't work that well for most people? Patient privacy is a big deal. I think that history shows you that if you're using the data specifically for a purpose that everyone kind of understands and knows that they're going to get back, that's great. Like that full body MRI, if I told you this data was going to enable that, you'd be like, sure, take mine. That sounds phenomenal. We're not combining this with a bunch of consumer data to make sales. We're just, we're literally trying to build products that go straight back to healthcare providers and the communities. And the health systems also share in that, right? So they get the products early, they get access to things, they see what's happening. So I think in that world, we feel very comfortable because we're not trying to use this for any other purpose. Can you talk about the other side of the marketplace? So the companies that want to license the data from Dandelion, what is the target customer profile? Who should be calling you up right now as soon as they hear this podcast? Probably my mom first. <laughs> it's really interesting because the data set that we're amassing is so large that kind of the use cases are almost to some degree infinite, which isn't particularly helpful when you go to market as when we chat about these things. But the really important things that people should be coming to us are AI developers. So anyone who's building an algorithm that wants to, you know, can I predict a heart attack from an electrocardiogram? Can I see lung nodules from an, from an MRI and be able to work out whether or not this is serious or not serious? Can I, all of those people, anyone who, who's always thought about, I wonder if, that's exciting. Whether you have a company or you'd like to build a company, like the whole point of Daddy Line is to try and build the future, as it were. So we want people even who haven't started in this space. In terms of incumbents, I think what's exciting is pharma, med device, AI developers, all of those classic kind of areas of healthcare, because the reality is the data that we have and that we're curating with the help of Ziad, my co-founder, who's basically world-class at doing this, is such high quality that this is what you should be using. As a patient, this is what I want people to use, right? Because I know that in the same way as a doctor 
goes into a room and the better information you give them, the more likely the diagnosis is going to be accurate. I want the best information being given to an algorithm so that I know that what's coming out at the end is going to be beneficial. And so anyone who's doing that, I think, has a reason to contact us and see whether or not we can help build their product. And have you had a lot of interest by doctors? So if you're a doctor and let's say you hear this pod and you're not part of one of those sins that, that is doing on your program, are most doctors really open to this? Do they see it as something that's very additive to the job that they have to do? I think so. I can't speak for everyone, obviously. But this isn't an attempt to replace physicians. But physicians, as with any job, I'd love help. I'd love help doing my job if I can. And I think you talked about AI and how much it's making a difference, right, across different aspects of society. This is just another example. And so what does this enable? This enables you to process insane amounts of data incredibly quickly and then add on top of that the layer of your understanding, your capability and experience. And so that's hopefully really exciting. What has enabled that? And this is, a, again, this is a conversation a lot of investors are having, both private markets, public markets, a lot of operators like yourself or technologists. AI and machine learning, these have been concepts that people have talked about in tech for 20 years. We've heard it in the background. I remember, and this is going to sound, and I'm using this example specifically, it was like five or six years ago. I remember one day I was on the set of Fast Money as a show after the market and eBay was up 10% and we were like, When's the last time eBay was up 10%? It must have been like 2000 or something like that. It was a headline about how they're using what they're doing with unstructured data to better monetize. This was six or seven years ago. These are things, if you've been in the markets, you've heard all of these things again and again. Why now? Why is this moment like right now? Um, and is it because some of the largest platform companies have basically laid down the gauntlet and they said, we are in like finally, this is ready for prime time and we're ready to talk about it and demonstrate how they can be commercialized? I think you have to split it a bit. I think on the large language model side, it's compute. It's just, it's insane what you can now do compared to what you could do three, four, five years ago. And Google came out with the transformer and that paper and suddenly everything changed and then the compute changed and here we are. Amazing. A year ago, I don't think OpenAI Open had a clue of how powerful this was going to get and how quickly that but was But is it how quickly? We all knew it would become powerful. It's funny because you, when you talk about compute, I've seen some, some data that suggests that compute right now for these searches is like 5x the cost of a Google search. Now, the Google search might not be nearly as good, but it's the thing that we're used to and it's free. And the, a lot of businesses have been built around this understanding that cost is acceptable. And I just wonder if a lot of this stuff's going to fizzle out when after the rush for all the chips to build the supercomputers, to have the data centers, right? And then the cost to compute. And then they're like, oh, we're not going to be able to monetize this anytime soon. And we just got done cutting tens of thousands of workers because we were too fat and happy. And this is the way the internet bubble popped in 2000. And we know the story of Sun Microsystem and Exodus Community communications and all the guys laying all the, the fiber and everything, and it went on and on. And at one point in the year 2000, Yahoo put one too many banner ads up there and the whole thing <laughs> collapsed. You know what I mean? And so I'm just curious, like this moment, and you can say I'm a little exasperated by all of this because I've seen these cycles again. And this is my public markets hat and I'm not in the trenches on the private markets. And again, I know people like you, if the hype does die down, you sit, you build, you're an early stage company and you're solving big problems. And all you can do is put your head down and build. It's more for these other guys that gain hundreds of billions of dollars in market cap based on the promise of this thing in the not so distant future. And I think we'd all take the over on that. I think there's a lot of froth. And to your point, like you've been an investor. I worked in financial markets for a number of years. You have, even in an upward channel, 
you're going to have moments where it comes crashing back down to earth, right? And product cycles are such a way, like at the moment, yeah, everyone's getting incredibly excited about the development cycle, the capabilities. People will start coming down to earth in the same way as they did on internet advertising of like, all right, we have way too many adverts for the amount of space that we have or the amount of money that people have allocated or imagined in the same way, right? So everything will become commoditized. But there's this huge next wave of deployment, right? Like, how do you integrate this into the workflow? What's the platform look like? The app store is not going anywhere, for example, as of now. Those kinds of elements is what's going to take it to the next level. For us, the biggest thing on healthcare has actually been data. That's been the biggest problem, is you just haven't been able to access the data. And we're really excited about is we feel like we're the first people to really get access to this much data of this kind of high fidelity. And so that's going to be the big differentiator. Now, that's not the only thing. Because what's important about healthcare is you've got to give everything context, right? Like data that comes out of one health system is super different to data that comes out of another. So you need to work with them to understand the nuances and then harmonize it together. And so that's all of the stuff that we're going to be doing is working through that to eventually get to a high class product. Is having more data better? For example, do you want to get every health system in the world onto Dandelion? If there was a zero cost and time, sure. That sounds nice. The reality is that we've been doing this for three years. These are incredibly complex organizations, right? We joke about it as being like finding Bob, right? Because there's a bunch of data sitting somewhere in a health system, like pulmonary function tests or bedside patient monitoring. You're like, I don't know who has that. You ask a bunch of people and you like go through the labyrinth to try and find it because they've never, this was not what they ever thought of using it for. And so you start finding those things and it takes a long time and then you have to be respectful. You have to go through the right processes. So. We only need five, we believe, because we share revenue with them. That's important, right? And we want them to benefit and their patients and their communities to benefit. And so therefore that gives us enough to get to a level where we're like, okay, we have enough data to be able to make generalized conclusions. Now we may get to five and be like, actually, we need a couple more, but no, we don't need it for this product. What I think is interesting is what happens next, right? How do you actually get, and this has come back to that deployment layer, we'll have the same thing in clinical AI. How do you then get all of these solutions to Alabama and to like more rural areas, right? This is where Sanford is like the largest rural health system in the U.S. as a partner is great because that's historically been an underrepresented community, as it were, in these algorithms. But you think how many people live in rural areas. And so hopefully by having that data set involved, we'll be able to get those solutions out to those people even faster. And they really need it because for some of them, it's a day trip to go to a hospital. Like, that's a big deal. Do you guys have some like real world examples of where you are saving lives with this data? Like the ability to do what you do is something that in some of these like rural areas, maybe they just don't have the level of service or the tech, the tech in the system. We hope to, we haven't got there yet, yeah. but I mean, there's a lot of, I'll give you a couple of product instances that are interesting. So our first focus is on cardiology, which is on or more specifically electrophysiology, the ECG, right? Or like a cardiac wearable device that someone wears to be like, okay. God, I just had an arrhythmia. Should I or shouldn't I go to the hospital? And that's a really tough decision right now, right? People honestly are just guessing. If we can get enough data that you can analyze that waveform and with a high degree of certainty, but like actually that shows that you probably just had that tremor you just felt was actually a very small heart attack. And so, yeah, you absolutely should get into the hospital now. Or actually that looks pretty similar to indigestion, whatever it might be. And we don't know if these relationships exist in this data, but there's so much of it that we're pretty sure you're going to find quite a lot. How do you guys think about hardware, right? So a lot of people are wearing the aura rings or the 
other things or these watches and stuff like that? Is there, is there a layer that's really important, especially in more rural areas? Yeah, those guys are clients. To be quite simple, to Katie's previous question, like these are exactly the devices we'd love to help them beef up their algorithms beneath the surface because they're running them, right? In the same way as an Apple Watch is. So that when you look down, the classic thing of an Apple Watch is you, you press in, it can just tell you if your heartbeat is irregular or not. It's not really telling you whether the chest pain you just had means you should go to the hospital and set up by bed. A lot of people use it for that. And so let's make them smarter. Yeah, I love the idea of the reality of AI being an assisted technology. And just one use case that I use personally is that I had a loved one who had an MRI and you get the MRI report and it's gobbledygook for a normal person. You're trying to read this. Ultimately, you're like, is this good or is this bad? Is the tumor bigger, the same or smaller? I can't understand this. And so I started to take the MRI report and put it into chat GPT. Please tell me if this is good or bad. And it was remarkable how it would come back and just read me a report like I was a normal person. And then I would be able to go back to the family. Okay, this is what's going on. And I would start talking to some of the doctors about it. And they're just like, it's all very brand new, but it wasn't threatening. What are some things that you guys are working towards like that, that obviously Katie's very focused on, but now I'm a new fan here, Elliot. What are some things that we should be looking at? So we just started getting data out of our first system. We're going to have a pretty exciting announcement a month time that's something public that we think is going to be a great service. I can't tell you too much, but it's going to be in the electrophysiology space. But we think it's going to really help people show people what you can do with this kind of data. So that's the first thing. The big second one for us is obviously, I'd love to run this on fumes, but you have to make some money along the way at some point. I'm staring at him very aggressively. I can feel it. I can feel (laughs) it boring in already. So yeah, so revenue obviously, but really for us, I would say the day that we can see one patient benefit from something that was built using this data. That would be an amazing day. We spent a lot of time, we talked about a little bit on the pod here. There's a lot of goofiness going on in and around this space. We see lots of Johnny come lately. There's a lot of like public CEOs and people just throwing the term out and they know it's going to get a little pop in their stock or that sort of thing. And um, there's real people, real smart people doing really great things, trying to solve really important problems. So I, I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure to have you on the pod. And Katie, thank you for the introduction. So that's Elliot Green. He's the CEO, co-founder at Dandelion Health AI. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. We're back. Katie and I have Scott Stevenson, the co-founder and CEO of Spellbook. Scott, welcome to OK Computer. Thanks for having me. Can I say a fun fact about Scott? Where should you? That when we invited him to join this podcast, he was the first guest that when we said it's called OK Computer, he's I love Radiohead. <laughs> so he's officially our coolest guest. Just so you know, and Katie and I were talking about this before we started recording. We have somebody who's been on the pod many times, friend of Katie's, friend of mine, and somebody that we look up to immensely when it comes to just as a journalist, but also as a podcaster. Kara Swisher hates the name. She's told me every time she's come on the podcast. So I appreciate that you appreciate the name and you can also see what we're doing here. It's not 
the letter O, the letter K. It's O-K-A-Y, exasperated, okay, a little bit. That's what we're <laughs> yeah, doing here. And it's not just Radiohead, by the way. It's the best Radiohead album. It, re- it really like is. Controversial opinion, but... It, it really is. But when Katie and I wanted to have this conversation and catch up on what she's been doing with Moxie and how just the environment has changed from 22 to 23, both in the public and the private tech investing landscape, there's been one common theme in both. And that is just this mania in and around AI. And so when she said, I said, you got any good portfolio company? She said, yes, I got one. And this is, it seems like Spellbook is, and I'd love for you to just explain it to the listener, but it seems like the integration of some of these technologies that we've seen consumerized just in the last few months is perfect for the sort of stuff that you were trying to disrupt in Spellbook. So talk to us a little bit about the origin of the company and then why you think we're having this moment right now as it relates to these technologies that you've been looking at, it seems like, for years now. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so we started as a company called Rally originally about four years ago with the mission to speed up legal work. I had been a consumer of legal work, so I come from an engineering background. I had a company before. I was frustrated with kind of the speed and cost of basic legal work and how that impacted how many people could start companies, how many small businesses could afford legal services and things like that. I have two great co-founders, Daniel and Matt, and Daniel's a lawyer. So he felt the pain from the other side. He went to law school and then experienced the the pure drudgery that is being a junior associate, you know, 10 word documents on your screen reading through these long contracts, copying and pasting texts and things like that. And uh, so we really just set out to really increase the efficiency that legal work could be completed in both drafting and reviewing, particularly commercial legal work. And we, we started doing what's called document automation. So basically very fancy templates that allow lawyers to prepare complex legal transactions very quickly. And we would always hear from our customers, like, this is really cool and helpful and it's, and it is. But it doesn't get to the level of like bespoke contract editing and review that I do for my clients. Templates were never, never really went far enough. And then large language models came around and all of a sudden we saw this ability to really digest unstructured text and output unstructured text in a really fast and intelligent way that just never existed before, which is really helpful for lawyers for working in text all day, every day or many of them are. And this kind of hit me as an engineer when GitHub Copilot came out. I've been coding for a really long time. I was really skeptical about GitHub Copilot, this AI, the first AI Copilot for programmers that will like output text as you're typing. And uh, the first time it output text for me, I was like, this looks like garbage. There's no way this works. And then 10 minutes later, I realized it was like thinking way ahead of me and really coming up with really nuanced and interesting ideas that riffed off my code and which is thinking way ahead of me. So yeah, we took that idea from GitHub Copilot and said, lawyers need the same thing. They're working on text in Word day in, day out. And that's where Spellbook, kind of our AI solution came from. And at first it was a small experiment, but it just completely took off. The amount of demand is still way more than what we can service. And we're trying to scale up pretty quickly. So it's been, yeah, really, really surprising. Yeah. And so to be clear, this first iteration of your product is not meant to displace lawyers. It's meant to assist lawyers. And talk to me a little bit about that, because as we think a lot of these different models that are using these large language models, right, the intention is not to replace workers just yet here. It's to basically assist them in the jobs that they're doing, make them more productive. Absolutely. In fact, we call our AI assistive AI. That's our entire approach. And again, very inspired by what GitHub Copilot does. It never replaces the programmer, 
these tools are like electric bicycles for knowledge workers that you're pedaling yourself, you're still steering the thing. Um, but some of that drudgery and mental overhead is being cleared out of the way for you by AI. And that's our whole approach to the product. So you can't delegate whole legal tasks to Spellbook. It sits on the side of Microsoft Word as you're working. You're still in the driver's seat. You're still reviewing everything that goes through it. But it's helping you move maybe three or four times faster through your normal course of work. That's our approach. And I think that will be our approach probably forever because one of the things we've learned through this process is like the work that lawyers do is extraordinarily hard. The interpersonal relationships are just as complex as like the drafting and review. The trust factor is super important. And I think we're a long ways from replacing lawyers with AI. I, and I don't see us, I don't see a path to us ever getting there, honestly. That makes a lot of sense. If you're going to be selling your service to lawyers, you don't want to tell them <laughs> that you're going to be replacing them anytime soon. But Katie, you and I were just chatting a little bit. You've looked at, you and your partners have looked at a lot of different business models, a lot of different founders, a lot of different like processes that AI is going to be very useful. What attracted you to Scott and his team and their mission over at Spellbook? We were lucky to be introduced to Scott via another investor that we tend to co-invest with. His name is Ben Ling with Bling Ventures. And we had worked with Ben way, way back at Google. He's super smart. We really trust his judgment. And when all this excitement for AI was going about, we had talked to many of the people that we trust in the industry. You know, who, who are you excited about and which founders are really you know, sticking out? And Ben had told us about Scott and the team at Spellbook. And we hadn't invested actively in legal tech. We were not looking in the legal industry. And we looked at his deck and thought it was very interesting. And then we met Scott and his team and we were just blown away. One of the things that makes Spellbook really unique is the multidisciplinary team that he has built. So Scott as an engineer and his team, former lawyers, and so they uniquely understand this problem. And then the second thing that we found so fascinating is we always like to talk to customers. Why do customers love this product? And my first gut was that, well, lawyers are going to hate this because they're going to be nervous that it's going to take away their role and they'll be able to bill less. And the opposite was true. So Scott introduced us to a couple of the early customers and they told us a few things. First, they can't live without this product. They love this product. And the second thing was, don't tell Scott this, but they're not charging enough. Now, this is music to a VC ear. And I was like, I'm definitely going to tell Scott this. He definitely needs to increase his price. But it was all these things put together that really stood out. And I love Scott's metaphor of an electric bicycle because it's exactly what this is. It's just supercharging, super powering work that has to be done that is inefficient and very expensive. And I don't know, Scott, if you're able to share a little bit about the customers that you have, but if you probably don't want to share any numbers, but if you can share a little bit about who are those ideal customers, how big are the law firms? How do they get in touch with you? Now, I'm also a little plug here as a VC, but but I do think it's really interesting to understand what types of lawyers want this product. First of all, we've had a ton of interest. So I think, and this number goes up every week, I think we're close to 60,000 waitlist signups now. And we have over 600 paying customers and 600 paying legal teams on board. And we've had interest from all across the spectrum. I think what's been really interesting is seeing the kind of small boutique to mid-sized firms adopting this technology at a ridiculous pace that I've not seen in my career before. I'm working on a new product. The smaller firms, they've moved towards flat fee billing models. They're more flexible in terms of moving away from hourly billing. So I think that's one reason they're willing to adopt this very quickly. They're looking for 
a better margin in their business. They're looking to be able to serve more clients. They're also looking for better work-life balance. One of our customers was quoted in an article recently saying, yeah, now they have more time to spend with their kids. And that was something that was really important to them. So I, I think that's been really interesting. At the same time, we have a ton of interest from big law as well. But I think the larger firms are still trying to figure out ex exactly how this fits into their business model, which practice areas should be using it, how they roll it out responsibly, and how there's a lot of other questions that they're considering. And I think for big law, the value proposition is more around quality. So this isn't just about moving faster. Your client asks you to look at a 100-page contract, and it's like, where do you even start? How do you do a good job of that? It turns out AI is really good at looking at 100 pages and helping you spot anything that's off or unusual. So with the larger firms, I think they're really interested in that, using it for quality control, consistency, making sure that all the attorneys across the firm are yeah, wor working in a consistent way to the firm's standards. Yeah. And I'm assuming because lawyers are focused on liability, a lot of the stuff that we're reading that's coming out of, let's say, chat GPT, like it cannot 100% be relied on. There's a lot of stuff that looks pretty official and it looks pretty good and better than maybe any of us could write, but there's biases in it that's not exactly correct. Talk to us a little bit about why, and just again, from a founder standpoint, we're reading more than we ever thought we would be in 2023 about these sorts of things. But why is this moment happening right now? Talk to us about the evolution of this chat GPT, because I'm assuming that you've looked at other iterations and maybe you've used other technologies too. And have you settled on this on open AI or is it still a jump ball right now? Kind of what's happened here? Why is there such a buzz? So we started with GPT-3, and this was before ChatGPT. We initially launched Spellbook September 2022. And at that time, we were using primarily GPT-3, and we could fine-tune it for legal use cases. And that's where we first got a lot of traction and a lot of really good feedback from our customers. Started coming in around not long after that. I think when ChatGPT released, then we saw our traffic spike even more. And we just saw an enormous interest from lawyers. Every lawyer is going and just trying chat GPT and, and seeing what it can do. And I'm being very surprised by the results. But it does have those caveats that you mentioned. It can write wrong things very eloquently. So that's something that we're super careful about in our product in, in terms of specializing it for law and making sure that it has very high accuracy. Lawyers want a product that is where accuracy comes first. So that's something that we focused on a lot. But yeah, chat GPT definitely did create a ton of interest for lawyers because many of them would try this out and immediately start to put the connected dots as to what this might mean for their career in the future. Because yeah, they process, they read and write text. That's a lot of what they do. In terms of the technology that we're using, we actually use a whole bunch of different technologies. So we started with OpenAI in the initial version of our product. We use other large language model providers as well, like Anthropic and Cohere. And we also train and fine tune our own models. There, there's actually a lot that goes into our application for helping lawyers with the task, like finding all the missing clauses in this contract. We may have a whole bunch of little AI components in there that help that task get completed. So it's often not just throwing it at ChatGPT and seeing what comes out. There's a lot of complexity when you try to do these tasks really well and really accurately. Scott, can you walk us through a use case or what are the most common use cases? I'm a lawyer at XYZ law firm. I am a new Spellbook customer. How am I actually using Spellbook day to day? We focus a lot on kind of commercial contracting today. That's probably our primary use case. And there's really two areas that we help there. One is with drafting and the other is with review. So I'll start with review. With review, you're going to load up some 
contract into Spellbook, usually a lawyer is not like drafting a contract from a blank slate. If they have to draft something, they're going to pull it up from a previous deal they've done, or maybe the party on the other side sent them a contract. So the first thing Spellbook will do is look at that document and spot areas for improvement. What in here is risky for your client? What in here is unusual? What should you be negotiating? We'll come up with a whole list of suggestions for the lawyer to actually dig into, which is a lot easier, you know, printing off the agreement and like reading it through a hundred pages and trying to find threads to pull on. So we give the lawyer these threads to pull on is what we call it, rather than just staring at a hundred pages. Then from those areas of improvement, we can help the lawyer draft. So say they see something like, oh, this is missing some indemnification language that should be there. We can actually help them draft that clause based on the language that we've seen in similar contracts that we've seen before. And so that's the second part where we help is in that drafting, helping find that perfect clause or legal language that's going to help fix that issue for the lawyer. But they're in the driver's seat the whole time. And with the drafting, we'll always tell our customers like, this is meant to give you marble to carve where you're, when you're staring at a blank section of the contract. So all of our customers will review that and tune it a little bit based on what we've suggested or output. But it's a lot faster than them digging through all the past contracts they've done trying to find that perfect clause. I'm sure you're reading a lot about this and there seems to be a whole heck of a lot of pushback. There's a lot of really smart use cases right now like you guys are doing, but there's this fear that and going back to the sort of jobs thing that ultimately um, it's going to make knowledge workers so good at what they do, so productive that ultimately it's just going to overtake a lot of the jobs that have existed just basically out of inertia in a lot of different industries. And I'm just curious, the debate goes back and forth. You always hear people say the over under here. And, and I'm just curious, like worst case scenarios, are you taking the over here? Is there any cause for alarm? Because I feel like if there's not people like you out there building use cases that we can all engage in that are going to actually do good right now, then it's not likely to attract the interest and the capital and the like here. And I'm just curious, like how you think this debate is going to play out over the back balance of this year because me putting my kind of public markets hat on right now, it seems like every company that's software enabled is thinking about how to integrate some sort of chat bot that's based on taking large pools of data and unstructured mostly and spitting out something that a human being just couldn't do. But ultimately, we're going to get bored with that. Ultimately, I don't know about you. I'm not using chat GP. I'm not using the Bing search anymore. I'm back to Google and I'm getting the blue links because it's what I know. And it wasn't able to demonstrate to me that it was that much better. How are you thinking about the timeline of this? We're in this hype moment. It's going to die out whether it's three or six months. And I don't mean it's going to die out where people like you who are building really great, smart products and services, they're going to be there. I just mean the public attention on it right now. And I almost wonder, might it be better if we could take it down to a simmer a little bit right now? I think any technology like this, like any kind of platform shift is going to have those waves of hype and then those troughs of disillusionment and then the eventual, the plateau of productivity. And it's, and I'm sure we'll probably go through some of that probably multiple times with AI, because it seems like every quarter or every six months there's some new AI advancement that people are excited about. So I think we're going to continuously go through this sort of oscillation of hype and disillusionment, but there's no doubt in my mind that the ultimately people are adopting these tools, the tools that are designed well and not implemented and just throwing AI at the wall and saying, oh, isn't this cool? I know from the metrics from tools like ours that we're just used an incredible amount and like our usage metrics are very high. GitHub Copilot's usage metrics are super high. 
and I would say higher than anything I've seen in my career before still. So I think the engagement is there. I think as always, you'll see people throwing spaghetti at the wall whenever there's hype and just not really thinking through how they're implementing AI and just turning everything into chat GPT chat. I don't think that's the right direction. So for instance, for us, part of what we do has nothing to do with chat. We just show a list of recommendations on the side of your Word document. It's a totally different type of experience than something like chat GPT. I think it's going to take time for software companies to really figure out how to use this new technology in a productive way. What this essentially gives us as software developers is the ability to digest unstructured text and the ability to output unstructured text. And we never really had this for the most part for a long time. So there's a lot of things that just haven't been built using this technology. I think people aren't thinking generally creatively enough about how to deploy it in a way that customers care about. I think one of the reasons Spellbook has been so successful at implementing AI is that we just knew our customers so well from working with them for so long that we knew exactly how to implement this in a unique, creative way that wasn't just, oh, here's ChatGPT, but now it's for law. It's still, you need those kind of deep customer insights. That's always been critical to building great products, and it's no less critical now. I think you will see a certain number of companies do extremely well and continue to grow over that period. And you'll see some of the, let's just throw AI at it, companies do less well, probably. To address the other part of your question, you said, are people worried about this taking jobs? Is this going to reduce the amount of lawyers needed? One thing I think a lot about there is the latent demand for legal services. So there's a stat that was thinking about that Clio put out that around 70% of people who could get legal services don't feel they can afford lawyers. So we have this in the world of law, there's this huge unserviced portion of the market that just lawyers haven't been able to economically tap into in the past. So I think it will actually grow the legal industry now that we're able to service these small and mid-sized businesses better and service these kind of smaller cases and matters better. I think we're a long way from there being less lawyers because of this, because there's still a ton of expansion into the market. So, Scott, if you're a law student and you're studying the law, you're getting excited for these new jobs, how should students consider using AI in their applications? Is it something that they can they use Spellbook today? Are you targeting some students potentially as users? So when they go out in the workforce, they'll be fluent in how to use Spellbook? We have an announcement coming on this soon. I can't quite say it yet. I will say we have an enormous amount of interest from students and law professors. I would say a few law professors every week are emailing us saying like, how can I get access to this for my legal writing class or for my contract drafting class? Yeah, I think this type of technology will shortly start to be fairly accessible to students. That's interesting. I, I was reading an article, I think it was late, late last week in the New York Times with Ezra Klein, who I think is just a brilliant thinker. And you guys probably read this already, but it was called Beyond the Matrix Theory of the Mind. And he finished it off. So spoiler alert here, people, if you haven't read it yet. To make good on its promise, artificial intelligence needs to deepen human intelligence. That means human beings need to build AI and they need to build the workflows and the office environments around it in ways that don't overwhelm and distract and diminish us. We failed to test this with the internet, let's not fail with AI. And I thought that was really interesting because everything what you just described, Scott, fits into that sort of kind of summary of Ezra Klein's view as he's thinking about a lot of these things. I really appreciate you coming on the pod and telling us about Spellbook and your mission over there. And I appreciate Katie for coming on and obviously introducing us to you. So we hope you'll come back and update us on everything that's going on in Spellbook. Thanks so much for having me. 
For you listeners that are paying attention, you may have noticed we got some new advertisements that we're running. Yeah, we do. We have a new co-presenting sponsor of OK Computer Podcast. You're going to see Roe across all the risk reversal media properties here. Why? Because I joined the Roe Body Program back in January. And, you know, Guy, I mean, listen, this is a audio medium here. But some of the people that see us on the Fast Money or some of our other shows, you see that... I've kind of had a little bit of a body transformation over the last four months. I've lost 30 pounds in four months using Roe Body, and I am using that drug that everybody is talking about. I was prescribed Wagovi through the Roe Body program here, and it's just literally changed my life in the last four months. It doesn't seem to be just a body transformation. It seems to be a lifestyle transformation. Last year, I turned 50 years old. My doctors have been hounding me to get my blood pressure down, my cholesterol down, some of the other things that I've kind of been dealing with that a lot of people of our age are dealing with. And every single time, every doctor says, lose 25 pounds and all that other stuff, including sleep apnea, including some gout here and there, will get better. And I got to tell you, man, like all of those things have gotten better, you know, and I'm about 13%. I think the way Robotti advertises that you could lose up to 15% of your body weight in a year. I'm already at 13%. But here's the key, man. I have worked out more in the last four months than I worked out all of last year combined. I've also cut out tons of carbs, tons of sugar. So my diet has transformed. So my kind of brain has been rewired at 50 about becoming a whole heck of a lot more healthy. And this weight loss that's happened is like, it makes me feel like I'm taking a wonder drug, which has really kind of supercharged my whole intensity about changing my lifestyle. Well, I've seen the road commercials on TV, but tell me more about the company, Dan. Listen, I don't know about you. Actually, I do know about you. You don't like to go to the doctor. And one of the things that was so interesting to me is that literally you start this all, this whole telehealth process here. They link you up after a free online visit with a U.S. licensed healthcare professional. They deal with all the medication. They deal with a prescription. They deal with your insurance company. And to me, having that all basically done online has just made the whole process um, a lot easier. So listen to our ads, people. Go to the links. Try it out. I'm telling you, it's changed my life in four months. To get our special offer, go to row.co slash OK. That's R-O dot C-O slash OK. O-K-A-Y. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.